Welcome to the Landmark Theatre's Q&A podcast. This week, moderator Gregory Elwood interviews director Todd Haynes for his new film, Wonderstruck. Hey everybody, I'm Gregory Elwood. I'm with The Playlist, and it is my honor tonight to moderate a Q&A with the man who directed this amazing film. Please welcome the one and only Todd Haynes. Thank you. First of all, is that not one of the most beautiful movies you've ever seen? Just gorgeous. And Todd, I want to ask you, you know, how did this project come your way? Were you a fan of the book? Like, how did you sort of even get in, in the works? I didn't know the book of Wonderstruck when, uh, I, when it first came to me. It came to me in the form of Brian's script. This is the first time Brian Selznick had adapted one of his own books. Um, and actually, it was Sandy Powell, our costume designer, who I've worked with for many, many years, since Velvet Goldmine in 98, uh, who got to know Brian after doing Hugo. And they became very close. Oh, wow. And she read Wonderstruck one time when she was hanging out with Brian. She said, I think this could actually be something for Todd. <laughs> and he was like, what? Todd doesn't do movies for younger audiences, <laughs> you know? So, um, but he, he thought about, he adapted it and he gave it to me, offered it to me. So I was, I was really, uh, I was completely enticed by the concept, by the story, by the double narratives, and by the theme of deafness and what that asked of the medium of film in telling a story on film. Well, one of the most amazing things is you actually cast deaf actors yeah. in the film. And correct me if I'm wrong, there are some deaf actors playing speaking roles in the silent version. Is that correct? Or are they pl silent. They're playing hearing characters right. uh, in the silent portion of the film. Uh, we, we, you know, we really tried to reach out to the deaf community and learn as much as possible from the deaf community and really let them know what we were aiming to do here. And in the process of doing so, and in the process of trying to find a kid uh, to play the role of Rose, which really meant stepping outside even the, really the, the you know, obviously out of, outside of professional acting realms in the deaf community, of which there are many, um, it meant, you know, finding non-professional non actors, you know, kids in the, across the country who were deaf. And in the process, we got to know a lot of people from deaf theater. <clears throat> and so we thought, wow, it'd be really cool to have them in the silent portion of the film, mm -hmm. basically portraying us, hearing folks, you know? But it meant that there was translators around the whole production and the sign, la sign language was being spoken constantly. And it just really interwove into the experience of making the movie, which meant so much to everybody involved. Well, um, Millicent, 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 Millie, Millie, um, is amazing in this film, and I'm, and I don't know sure how old she is. Is she like? She was twelve when I met her. Thirteen when we shot the movie. She's now fourteen. So, can you talk about working with her and when you and you auditioned her? How you knew she was just perfect for this role? We got about there were about two over two hundred submissions of self-made tapes that kids sent in from across the country, deaf girls around this age. And my casting director, Laura Rosenthal, and her amazing team kind of solicited the process and really sent out notices to schools across the country, not, all, not even entirely deaf schools. Millie was in an integrated hearing school when we found her. 
And uh, I just, I, but seeing her, every kid sort of slated at the beginning of their, their auditions and told a little bit about themselves in sign language. And we were just, just watching Millie talk about herself, her life, how much she loved sign language, how much it meant to her, how much being deaf meant to her. The way it informed her experience and her life. It was just, it just sent shivers through all of us watching it. And we just sort of crossed our fingers and were like, oh God, I want <laughs> this to work out and have her be as good as she is lovely and kind of amazing as a person. And she ended up being that good. And I'm, yeah, it was a really an, an incredible experience. I'm curious, do you remember when there were, I don't know what order you shot or what scenes you shot with her first. Do you remember shooting a scene either with her or looking at dailies and going or, you know, playback and going, oh, we're okay. Like she's great. Like Yes. I mean I, I kind of knew she was okay because we did enough steps along the way to prepare for her. But I'll have to I will I will confess the one of the very first scenes we shot with Millie was her in the movie theater watching uh, Lillian in the on the screen, right? And there's a point where she's supposed to get a little bit, you know, teary and moved by what she's watching. And I'm watching Millie. It was our first one of our first days of the shoot, and we're dealing with the lighting and Ed, my DP, and everyone. You know, we're going crazy. And I have this deaf kid, and we're tra working with the translator. And I'm watching it on the monitor, and the monitor, the quality of the monitor is not the best in the world. And I don't see the tears in her eyes. And I went up to her after a couple takes and I said, you know, Millie, if you want, we can do a little spray in your eyes. All actors use it all the time. And she was like, and I was like, oh, okay, okay. We'll just, we'll keep, we'll keep going. We'll just let's go with it. And then I get the dailies back and she's crying oh, wow. on the very first day of the shoot. I mean, she's that immediately connected to the character and the situation and the whole alienating process of shooting a movie. And I felt like a complete numbskull, of course, <laughs> you know, because I wasn't seeing what she was doing, but it, it, she's something else. Um, in terms of the casting process, you know, Oaks, who plays uh, Ben, yeah. uh, what was that casting him like in... in Obviously, he's in the film more than, than Millie is, in, I think, for screen time. Yeah. When did you know that he was the one? Like, Was it through his process? Or? We, you know, we started out by looking at kids from the East Coast. We were going to be an East Coast-based film, a New York-based film. And we knew, again, we knew that if we didn't find a deaf kid, we would move to the hearing community and we'd find professional kid actors. We knew if we didn't find a kid in the East Coast, we'd move to you know, L.A. kids, of which there are, is a more abundance of, of professional actors. But we started there, and we just hoped we would find kids that would be right for the role. Oakes Fegley had played the lead role in Pete's Dragon, the Disney film, and done a really lovely, amazing job in that, in that performance. So he'd had experience. His father is an actor. His mom, the whole family does acting. They live in the out, outside of Philadelphia, um, Pennsylvania. And, uh, but he, just had, he was just incredibly natural and very self-possessed, like Millie is, and uh, intelligent. And he was very young. I mean, he's, he was 11 when we shot the movie. He was 10 probably when I met him, but incredibly bright kid, you know, just like preternaturally intelligent. 
Um, and the other uh, young actor I really want to talk about Jayden. is Jaden. Jaden, because yeah. I, this sounds so douchebag of me, but I've been to a couple of events, parties. It was at the Cannes event that they had for this. And he is the most energetic kid you see. He runs around like crazy, like time of He's his life, every dancer, single event. Incredible dancer. Yeah, I'm curious, like, what, what was he like in the audition project? Project. Well, Jaden was uh, this is this was a little different from the book. It was sort of my thinking that it would be really great to cast a Latino kid in this role and to make bring a little more diversity into the storyline and also have that reflect kind of what New York City was about in the 70s and contrast that further to what it was like in the 1920s. And and also have it be J- Jamie who's the one who knows sign language, a product of the New York City public school system. By the 1970s, sign language was something being taught, you know, uh, for kids. Um, and that Oaks, who had just become deaf, didn't know it. And and uh, that Jamie's dad was the guard, worked at the Natural History Museum, and Jamie knew the Natural History Museum inside and out. Um, but so Jaden was just of a smaller handful of sort of finalist kids who had just the sensitivity and the understanding to, 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 for the role. It's also very demanding. There's a lot of physical business that Jamie has on his shoulders. He's the one who has to remember that, de- that Ben can't hear. Go, all right, write it down, you know, show it to Ben, have Ben read it, take it back, re- read it back and, and speak back, and then just remember to write again, even though Ben is speaking to him. So he carried a lot of the kind of you know, challenges of the physical business of the scenes on his shoulder. So Jaden ended up auditioning against more Ben's than mm-hmm. Ben's auditioned against Jamie's. And he, and I saw incredible versatility and sensitivity in this kid with the way he would behave with different actors. He just adjusted. He was very intuitive. And that showed in the way he played against different actors. So that showed just incredible sensitivity and perception, I think. So it was quite clear. And he was incredibly charming, you know, lovely, lovely kid, both of them. Um, you know, another character in this film is the Museum of Natural History in New York. Yeah. And I'm curious, uh, I, you would think it would be a slam dunk that they would say, sure, we'll be part of this. Were you nervous waiting to hear back if they'd say yes? Did you have any contingency plan if they said they said no. You know, we really didn't have a contingency plan. I mean, the whole movie didn't <laughs> did not have a contingency plan. We really jumped into it um, full throttle. Um, we had to go through the red tape. I mean, Brian Selznick had a great relationship with the Museum of Natural History after his book. They loved his book. They respected him. So there was a good overture. And I had an early meeting at the museum with Brian with the artistic director of the Museum of Natural History, they let us go behind some of the dioramas into the back rooms. We saw like, you know, things like little graffiti that the diorama artists had carved under the walls, you know, from the 1920s when they had first built them. It was pretty, pretty remarkable. So just to be able to be led into the Museum of Natural History, the, the you know, Night of the Museum franchise, I don't believe they ever shot inside the actual museum itself. It was all done on stages in Hollywood. They shot the exterior. But uh, it, we took it a step at a time. Each diorama is controlled by a sort of patron, like a sort of committee of patrons and donors. You know, there's a lot of bureaucracy involved. So we had to really take it a step at a time and really pursue each thing that we needed. The only diorama we got access to getting inside and putting brighter lights into was the wolf diorama. But they gave us limited time. 
there. We had to. We couldn't leave equipment overnight when we shot there. We shot like two weeks at the Museum of Natural History on uh, successive weekends, and we'd have to load in and load out each time we went, which took a big bite out of our shooting day. But uh, but we got to shoot in the Museum of Natural History, so and, it was amazing. And some people who are in the industry, who are in this audience, obviously know that if you have kids in a film, you're limited to the number of hours they can yeah. work, and they can't work past a certain amount of time it's depending like eight on the to state. Nine hours a day, union rules of kids. It's a little more, little tighter in LA unions actually. So were you were you doing nights like while people were out of the, the museum, or was we it were like doing nights, but not. Yes, we were doing the later hours, but it would always overlap with the public hours of the day. So we had time where the public was still on the premises, and then they would start to do their different like uh, recorded messages for people to start clearing out of the museum in all the languages. Every while language, you're shooting, while we're shooting, <laughs> many many challenges, but it was wor- it was worth it. Of course, it was just. Uh, Invaluable. Uh, absolutely. And one of the things about this film that I was so taken with is what you and your production designer and um, Sandy as costume designer and Ed Lockman as the cinematographer, the worlds you guys create, recreate almost for the 70s and the 1930s, 20s, 20s 1927. is remarkable, especially the 70s stuff where it looks like it's footage straight, straight from like a film taken right. during that time. Right. And you've all worked on Carol together and obviously you've worked with Ed and and Sandy before, what sort of rhythm do you guys get into? How do you work as a committee to know that like you're not doing the cliche, that you're not like doing the wrong you know thing that people would go, oh, of course they'd have that. You know, it starts by picking the best people to work with. In this case, it wasn't even uh, Judy Becker designed Carol. Mark was unavailable oh, at the time. No, it's fine. I've worked with Mark in the past, and Mark is a genius. And um, he also knows New York City. Well, Judy does as well. But Mark, Mark, New York is sort of his backyard. He grew up there. And he really, he really lived through a lot of the locations and, and even the, the sort of the pathways that Ben takes in his own life. He lost his mother at a young age when he was uh, like Ben d- does in the film. Uh, he spent tons of time in the Museum of Natural History as a kid. So, uh, and it sort of started with Mark helping us sort of strategize and find where the locations would be, what we could use as raw material to start to dress and change for all of the elements of the movie. But really, it's it's intense research. You know, looking at a, a lot of you know films from the period, photography from the period, and sharing that stuff. Like I begin doing a pretty in-depth uh, image book that's sort of my first stage of interpreting whatever film, whether it's a script I write or not, to begin to communicate with all my creative departments in a non-verbal uh, way, just a purely just through images. And then that gets shared with everybody, respectively, starting with Ed Lockman, the DP, the production designer, the costume designers, and even actors find the image book incredibly meaningful and like and, and specific. So that's really how, how we begin. But Sandy Powell is somebody, the costume designer, is somebody who's, a, who's in the process of casting the background people, like intensely engaged in like starting with the bodies that we cast, you know, bodies have changed since the 1970s. We, we're, our frames are different. Our musculature is different. The way we exercise and the way we eat is quite different. And so you needed to start with the raw material of the best 
bodies and the best phys physical specimens that really represent the range of that time and place. And she paid very close attention to that, and similarly with the 1920s. And then it's about a hair and makeup team that's incredibly mm -hmm. detail-oriented. But so it takes everybody hands on deck. Um, and I, I think I may have spoken to you about this for, for Carol, but I know a lot of filmmakers have talked about the fact that a lot of the, the locations you would have thought would be available in New York to sort of show even the 80s or, or, or 90s are no longer there. And here you're doing the 70s. Was it hard to find the locations to sort of make it work? It was. I think we shot in some of the very last crumbling blocks of Brooklyn <laughs> and Queens that probably weeks after we wrapped were already moving into gentrification because it's just what's been happening. But we have, we have them in the movie, right? We have them preserved in the film in their respective periods. The tricky part of this film, on top of everything else that was a challenge, is that with the limited number of hours up with kids per day, eight or nine hours per day, you have a 12 to 14 hour shooting day with your crew. So the kids expire after eight hours. And then you have the rest of the day that you gotta fill in, which basically meant we had to shoot some of the 1970s and some of the 1920s every single day of the shoot. So that became an addition, it's already a puzzle, this movie. But that became an additional puzzle, just in how to pull it off logistically as a production, that I relied on my assistant director and, and our producers, our line producers, and everybody was just really figuring this out, you know, and making, trying to make me feel secure that we can really pull it off. Um, I also want to ask about the Queens Museum diorama, yeah. uh, because I've seen the movie twice, and every time I see it and they're walking through it, I'm like, oh my gosh. He's 13 or 14. Did he, like, I'm so afraid something's going to got, got hurt while you shot it. But can you talk about what that was like? Was that also sort of a... It was a, incredible. I, I lived in New York for 15 years. I never, I never knew about the Queen's I'd, Museum. I didn't know it existed either. I and was I never visited it while I lived in New York City. And it's just an extraordinary, it's gorgeous. It's massive. It's bigger than this whole room. And it was, you know, from the, the 64 World's Fair, and it's been preserved. And just, I think, the fact that this movie makes it such a central final third act of the film and that Brian's book has brought new attention to it, I hope it brings more people to it. It's still in the Queen's Park with the Unisphere that you see in the movie, that you drive on the highway. When you're driving to Manhattan, you usually pass it, and you see all those things there, and you see the Queen's Museum uh, um, sign. But uh, yeah, it's an incredible, it was an incredible privilege. We did, one bridge did get damaged. <laughs> Not by a kid, it was somebody on our crew. Was there an audible gasp? No one gasp? ever told me who it was. Oh, this didn't happen where people saw it, it like happened later? No, it happened while we were shooting. The crazy <laughs> thing is, Ed Lockman, his brother, my DP, his brother built those bridges oh, himself wow. for the museum. And Ed gets on the horn to his brother, who's still alive, still around. And was like, Michael, didn't you build the bridges on the Queen's Museum? He's <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I thought so, you know. So we had somebody help us uh, repair <laughs> the bridges who had originally built them. It's pretty lucky. Um, well, I want to take some questions from the audience. Uh, you, ma'am, right there. So intrigued about the sound. How did you decide we're going to leave the 1927 completely sound? And how much did you decide to leave the sound in and take it out for the 70s? Mm. Thank you. Well, sound really was such a conscious um, character, really, in the film. From the beginning of the process, something that I knew, the music, I knew that the soundtrack, the, the, the score that Carter Burwell composed, 
would be like a central character of the film. In Brian's original script, he basically designated music to the silent portion of the film, black and white portion of the film, and then a contrast between objective sound of the city and dead silence for the 70s story. And I loved how much he was thinking about sound at the level of a script, but I also sort of knew that that would probably have to adjust in the process of making a film, and making really a single film where the two strands are in conversation with each other and need to kind of have a discourse going back and forth and informing one and the other. So, and so music I knew would end up having a role in Ben's story as well. Sound design and a kind of more kind of atmospheric uh, treatment of sound would have a part in both of the stories and play sort of underneath some of the rose uh, sections, the black and white sections. And then Carter's score, which, which created all of this sort of these voices and the way he arranged it, where percussion plays a very important part in both halves of the story. Percussion was a really lead character in the, the way it was vocalized as a score. Um, all of that became sort of part of the process. But I knew that the, the part of Ben's story, which is more subjective, because he just became deaf, that we would really want to play out moments where he's entering the city, we're inside his head. For it, what we've heard about deaf people is no deaf person hears absolutely nothing. They all hear different dynamics of sound in different registers, frequencies of sound, high or low, depending on the person. And, and in addition to that, Ben had only just become deaf. So you imagine that there was almost a memory of sound or like, you know, premonition of sound that was still haunting him. So I just wanted all of that just seemed like a, such a cool, creative range to think about so that a hearing audience would really be asked to think about what hearing means and how much we kind of take it for granted in life uh, when you watch a movie like this. Uh, you, sir. I'm a, I'm a really big fan, fan of yours. My question is, um, with, with, all, with all your earlier stuff, like um, Suicide and Poison, um, and even elements of Wonderstruck, would you ever be interested in doing a horror film? Because it's a segment in Poison that's very horror-esque and Poison. I'm interested in doing the, In case you couldn't hear, the question was whether Todd would be, ever be interested in doing a horror movie. I well because he the the questioner right. was saying yeah. some of the, my films may evoke that for you uh, a little bit yes and definitely the poison is my first feature film which is a sort of three story three different styles three genres that sort of interweave and one of them is based on kind of B style horror cinema sort of sixty psychotronic cinema you know the black and white fun uh, trippy cinema from that period. Um, but basically commenting on the whole idea of the outsider and somebody who would be contaminated with an illness as a way of speaking kind of about the AIDS era from a different vantage point. Um, one thing I have to say, like Safe, which is the feature I made after uh, Poison, is about a woman who becomes environmentally ill, starring Julianne Moore, where really everything in her environment becomes a contaminant, something that's starting to affect her sense of sanity, her sense of physical health, her sense of psychic well-being. And I remember Wes Craven, 
that year, this was 1995, saying Safe was the scariest movie of the year. And I was like, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I love, I love great, I love really great, smart psychological horror films like The Exorcist. This is one of my favorite films of all time. So I can't imagine not being, in, you know, sort of seduced by the genre again. I think we have a question from this lady, young lady right here. Yes. So the question was um, such a great whether question. The, <clears throat> the subtitles were added so that deaf people uh, could also come to the theater and see the movie as well. What you guys saw tonight, some, some screenings have it and some screenings don't, and I'm not always sure which ones do and which ones don't. This was called an open captioning screening. It's sometimes called closed captioning, sometimes called open captioning, and there's some, some divergence of what the differences mean. But that's what, that is designed for deaf audiences. So it describes what the audio track is doing. Exactly. Exactly. So deaf audiences can read what's happening, but hearing audiences can watch the same screening and hear it with hearing. But it means we can all sort of share the experience of the movie together. That's a really good, good question. cool question. Um, I want to see if there's anybody up. Oh, you right there. Sorry, couldn't see. Um, the scenes where you can't hear anything from the deaf people who are speaking to them, was there an actual script written that they were reciting to the people at that? There was. Um, th this is in the black and white story that doesn't have uh, her audible dialogue. It's played like an homage to silent cinema. But because, and in the original script, yeah, there was, it didn't say what their dialogue was. But I realized as soon as we were getting close to production, I was like, oh, these actors really need to know what they're saying. <laughs> And and so it's so they're not just being asked to improvise it every time, and that some scenes would end up being shorter and longer than others, and I couldn't intercut them, and it would just help everybody, you know, to know what they were saying, even if it was a deaf actor, because we cast some some of those actors are deaf actors. Uh, many deaf actors do speak, but some don't. So I just wanted everybody to have you know to know what, what was on the page, and they could mouth it or they could speak it, depending on what their orientation was. But it gave everybody the same, the same script. Would you ever consider releasing like, the script for it in any sort of way so we can tell? Oh, for those of us who can't no, look No, because I think something happens when you watch it, when a hearing audience, you know, I can't speak for a deaf audience, who can, who, many of whom can read lips very well. I also thought it was important to not subtitle the speech between Julianne Moore and Tom Noonan when they're signing to each other. So that's something that only deaf people can interpret. And hearing people just have to just watch it and see what that's like. You know, that's, that's something for the deaf audience to understand, especially. But, uh, but no, I think there's something interesting that happens when, you, when, you, when we all have to watch speech and not hear it. And what that does to our thinking and the way we read differently, you know, I think it kind of makes you more interested, not less interested. Okay, we got time for one more, and I so apologize, so I don't want to take someone up there. You right there, sir. Uh, yeah, I have a question about the visuals, specifically in the 1920s. How much Brian Selznick's book played a role in developing that style? Uh, the question was about the visuals from the 1920s, and how much did Brian's book sort of influence that style? 
Brian's, Brian's book is so beautiful, and the 20s part is told in images, in drawings, and the 70s part is told in text, and they interweave. But he, what he presented to me was already something that he was starting to translate in his mind into a film, and so I sort of took that as, a, as an invitation to not look back at his illustrations. I mean, I did, because they're so gorgeous, you know? But I didn't base the visual language necessarily on them. I have to say, though, that the idea of the way we handled Rose's, in the third act, Rose's story that Ben is reading, the story he's been awaiting through the whole film, we depicted it in miniature, sort of as an homage both to a diorama idea and to the miniature of the panorama. And because these are the languages that come right out of the film. And we think, I was thinking, oh yeah, that's what, how Ben would picture Rose's backstory. But a diorama is very much like an illustration because it's picking a single frame. It's picking a sort of privileged moment, frozen moment to tell a story. Uh, in, it does it in 3D and a drawing is 2D, but it's the same idea. It's picking like one moment to describe the story. So in that way, I really think we were going back to the idea of illustrating privileged moments that a drawing, a series of drawings, would describe in a, in a visual graphic novel. Uh, everyone, please thank Todd Haynes for joining us tonight. Thank you and guys so much. Please spread the word about Wonderstruck. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Landmark Q&A podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe to us on iTunes, or if you want to watch the video of this recording, head over to our YouTube page where you can find this episode and many more.